This is a sermon by Pastor Jason at Reality Church. Join us as he continues his series in Romans. It is wonderful to be before you again this morning to bring this word to you. I pray that you've all uh, been challenged by the word last week. Um, let me say something about preaching. I started reading a little bit in uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on preaching and preachers. Um, and even in the 60s, 50s and 60s, they were having a struggle with preaching. Preaching seemed to be less important. And uh, that was a uh, kind of a thing that they were struggling with. And I think it's kind of something we struggle with now. That uh, the, the preaching kind of disappears a lot of times in our services. Um, I want to explain to you kind of real quick what preaching really is. Preaching is meant to challenge and provoke the hearers um, to think more deeply about God. To think more deeply about what the Word says about God. It even pushes us, listen, listen to this, it even pushes us to question things. So that we can seek answers from the Word of God. So if you hear something that, that's a challenge to you that you don't get, guess what it's meant to do? Push you to the Word to seek answers. That's what preaching is about. And I pray that my preaching does this for you. The last, last week's sermon was a pretty challenging sermon. And, and I seek to constantly improve in being a challenge to you. Paul excelled at preaching. Paul was awesome at it. He, uh, you can see in his writings that just, just how challenging he always was. Um, with Paul, it was to the point, his he was so challenging at times to people's minds that he was constantly questioned and misunderstood. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because when you're challenged, when maybe you misunderstand and you want to seek something out, that drives you to the word. Then you can see what's being preached. And Paul was constantly answering these challenges to what he was preaching, to the, to the message he was giving. Uh, and we've actually discussed some of these questions. Uh, one of them, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Another one, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Most recently, is the law of sin? Paul always answers those questions in the same way. King James Version, God forbid. ESV Version, by no means. It is not even possible for those questions to be answered yes. It is not possible. You see, there's so many challenges that come when people are, cha are, are challenged by preaching. That's good. That's good. Let's question things. Let me, let me say something clearly. This, isn't even, this even, isn't even in my notes, but I want you to know this. If I say something that makes you feel weird, makes you not understand what's going on, first of all, you are welcome to text me in time and ask me a question about it. Next, look in the Word. What does the Word say about it? What does the Word say? Because I'm not up here... To give you your theology. I'm up here to teach sound theology and doctrine. But.
but it's up to you to decide what do you think about God? What do you know about God? What does his word say? That's a challenge for you. That's part of your personal discipleship. That's what helps you grow. Now, I'm up here trying to teach the best doctrine I can. Absolutely. And I hope that it helps you. But the words that I say are fallible. The words that the Bible say are infallible. So trust the word over anything else that you hear. Over any song. Over any uh, cool preacher. Over any, anything like that. Trust the, what the word says before you trust anything else. So Paul is answering these objections as he teaches. And in this next text, he's going to answer completely what the law is. You know, because he's, un, he's, he's told us, no, it is not sin. The law is not sin. It's important that he told us that, right? Because we could misunderstand him. He's taught some things that we could misunderstand if he doesn't explain himself. Um, Vody Bauckham calls what Paul does uh, expository apologetics. Those are big words. It's okay. What he's saying is Paul uses questions that he's been asked to answer specifically those questions. That's expository apologetics. He answers the questions that are being asked. An apologetic is not an, apo an apology for Jesus. An apologetic is a firm, sound, biblical answer given with kindness and respect. And that's what Paul does. So now hear the infallible, inspired word of God. Romans 7, verses 12 and 13. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, that it is infallible and errant and it stands. God, that it is a reliable historical document written by eyewitnesses in the, other eye, in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And it testifies to supernatural events that were prophesied in Scripture. And it is divinely inspired, not written by human hands. But Spirit, you, you spoke into these men's hearts and you guided them as they wrote these things. And we thank you for that. Father, we ask that you would remove the veil, that we may see your word more clearly. Bless us with that revelation knowledge that we may use it and retain it. Holy Spirit, illuminate this scripture that we may see everything that you have to say about it. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is an absolutely important set of verses. Uh, these verses are so important for the believer to understand and apply to their knowledge. We need to understand what the law is. We need to understand why... We use it and how we use it. It's important for us to do that. Why? Because it's going to help us in our daily lives, for one thing. And also it's going to help us to understand who God is. In order to truly see the context here, I want us to kind of break the verses down, kind of like we've been doing a little bit. Because we really need to do justice to what Paul is saying here. Verse 12 says something very awesome. It says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. First, let's take a moment to 
define two very important terms. Um, we need to understand what's being said here. Let's look at the, word, the terms law and commandment. Okay? Because they seem to be different things, right? You know, because he splits them with and, right? He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just, and good. Well, these aren't necessarily different in their meaning. Law would be described as God's written standard. standard. And, and that's something that Calvin, Hodge, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, Matthew Henry, all of these people taught that the law was God's written standard, but it was also in some way an expression of God's own character written as a standard. That's why it's so holy, because the law is an expression of his character. The commandment means that we are held to that standard. So the law is the standard, and the commandment says, by saying commandment, it says the law is something that we're held to. Basically, in order to please God in ourselves, we would have to follow the law exactly. That's commandment. That's why they call them the Ten Commandments. Because they're commands. That if you can follow these, you're righteous. Of course, we all know that there's a problem with that. We can't do it. Hard as we want to. Hard as we try. Paul gives these commandments three descriptions. The first is holy. Holy. Um, the law is absolutely holy. It is the exact, complete opposite of sin. It, the law is, is an expression of the character of our God. And then because it's a commandment, he tells us that to please him in ourselves, we must follow it. We must be holy as he is holy. That's the holy requirement of, this, of these commandments. Because they are holy. If I followed them exactly, I'd be holy too. There's a problem with that. I can't do it. The second thing is they are just. Now, one of the main attacks that our sin works in us, notice I didn't say that, that we have, our sin works this in us, because in ourselves we know that the law is good. We know that it's holy. We know that it's awesome. But in ourselves, what, the sin, what sin says is, what it works as it pertains to the law is that it's not fair. This isn't fair. That we have to follow these, these laws, that we have to do these things. Why does it require so much of us? Why should it require anything at all? I've heard this argument, and I find it strange. See if you, see if you agree with this. If, if, if God's the holy, sovereign God, why doesn't he just say, all right, no more sin, you all get to go to heaven. That's not how it works. He gave the law. He gave the mediator. Christ is the way to heaven. Before Christ, we feel we deserve to be happy and pursue happiness however we feel. Whatever makes me feel good, that's what I pursue. Because that's, that's, that's what's got to be good, right? Listen to your heart. You heard that song before? 
That's a terrible song. That's terrible advice. Because the heart is wicked and deceptive. From the moment of our birth, we are seeking ways to rebel against our God. But the law is completely just. If you hear nothing else, I want you to hear what I say about God next. God as creator has rights over what he has created. He created us. He has a right to tell us how to live. Why? Because he created us. We didn't create ourselves. He created us. I often think of that scripture that asks what right the clay has to ask the potter, why did you make me like this? What right does the clay have to ask the potter that? The potter's the one creating, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the example of Adam and Eve. Great example. They were placed in the garden with one law. Just one. Only one law. And what was the one law they broke? That one. They broke the one law, the one thing. They could eat of any tree they wanted. And they were deceived into eating of the one they were asked not to. They rebelled against the creator that set up how things were to be done. They were cast out of the garden. And they had no right to complain about that. God was just in that punishment. They rebelled. They were cast out of the garden. That was justice. That's how it went. That's how it goes. When we rebel against our creator, whatever his justice is, is just no matter what we think about it. He is just. His law is just. It also says that the commandment is good. Now, the law is good in so many ways. No matter what preaching you've heard that says that the law is not good, the law is good. It's good in several ways. You ready for the first one? The law helps us to clearly be able to see what sin is. It helps us to identify exactly what a sin is. We don't have to, to guess and, and hope and, 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 and try and figure out, is this a sin? Listen, it's clearly written in Scripture what sin is. And I'll even go this far. When people try to hold you to a standard of preference and say it's sin, if it's not in the Word, if it's not sin in the Word, it's not a sin. It's not. God has told us what sin is, missing His standard, not meeting His standard. Matters of preference, that's every person's conviction. There's things that I don't do that some may do, but guess what? It's not sin. We need to hold ourselves to the standard that God set up, okay? What he says is sin is sin. And man, and, and funny thing, he says, if a man knows in his heart to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is what? Sin. There you go. It's not bad to know what sin is. Our sin offends a holy God. And if it is offending a holy God, it's a very good thing to know what I'm doing that is offending a holy God. That's a good thing. Because you know what? Offending a holy God is not a good thing. 
And I need to know what I'm doing to offend him. So the law is good in that it shows us. It also shows us the best way to live. God laid out in his law specific things that would help us live in community and with others. Um, it also gives us standards that are so much higher than what our sinful flesh would have chosen to do. So much higher. The first four that talk about our relationship with God, they set up so many standards that focus on God that our sinful flesh would never choose. So the law is good and the commandment is good. You see, his law leads us to a life of joyful living. So the law is good in that it, it leads us to a joyful life. You can't read Psalm 119 and not understand that the law and the commandments are beautiful and can lead us to happiness and, and joy and peace in our lives. We just got through reading Psalm 119 every morning in our church last week. Reread it. It's long. I know it's long. It's good, though. Read it a section at a time if you got to. Make it your devotional every morning to read a section of it. But man, the law helps us to live a life of joy. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on Romans. He says, So the apostle is justified in saying that the law and each individual commandment is thoroughly good. Nothing can be better for us than the keeping of the law. Nothing could be better for us. If we could do it, it'd be great. Nothing would be better for us, but we know it's a standard that many of us, we can't keep. David speaks of the law very powerfully in, in Psalm 19. Verses 7 through 11. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. It revives the soul. It makes us wise because we begin to understand who God is. It, 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 it it makes us rejoice in our hearts because we're doing things that, that are good and pleasing to God. It's, it enlightens our eyes. It helps us see clearly this world and, and, and what's going on in it. It drives us to evangelism because we see a world that needs to understand that Christ has kept the law so that we can be saved. It's righteous altogether. It's better than gold. It's better than honey. It's, it's, it's better than anything. And it warns us. And it gives us a great reward. So the law, the law is not the problem. 
problem with keeping the law is that we can't do it. That's the only problem with the law. Because it is holy, just, and good. Now, as we look at it, in verse 13, Paul gets another one of those questions where he's been misunderstood. And he's got to answer the question as usual, right? Verse 13 says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's the question that he's, he's questioned with. He's misunderstood again, right? Did that which is good then bring death to me? Because he's just said the law is holy, righteous, and good. But he also says previously that the law, because of the knowledge of the law, he, he died. So is that good law killing people? He answers it very clearly. What's his answer? Was it the law itself that killed him? I love his answer. It's how he always answers those objections. By no means. That isn't what killed me. How can we know this absolutely? How can we absolutely understand that it wasn't the law that killed Paul? Let's go to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. So how do we know that it wasn't because Paul was told the law and began to understand the law and began to see the law more clearly? How do we know that that isn't what caused his death, as he says? He says, sin revived and I died, right? How do we know? Because of what he writes in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, when he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. How do we know the law didn't kill Paul? The law was, was an evil and, and a murdering instrument that makes us all die inside. He was already dead. We were already dead. We need to personalize that. Before we knew Christ, we were dead. Not drowning, not struggling, not having a hard time. We were dead. Dead in our sins and our trespasses. No life. I love that, um, that illustration. Brother James gave it, and I've given it before. R.C. Sproul talks about how um, it's not like Jesus is in a boat with his arm out trying to rescue a dead guy, a, a, a guy drowning when he saves us. It's as if he jumped into the water, swam all the way to the bottom, grabbed the skeleton that was dead on the floor of the ocean, and swam up, and as he brought it up, it was alive. That's salvation. Because we were dead. You were in sin, you were dead. And Christ has brought you to life. So it wasn't the law that killed him. Then he says a very important little phrase. He says, it was sin. It was sin. It is sin that is the ultimate deceiver. 
Sin is what has made us dead. Not the law. Sin. Sin takes the holy, just, and good law and makes us rebel against it. But there is another effect that the law has on this sinful state. And I pray that we have all seen the law have this effect on us. The law does this. He says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Sin turns us to rebel against what is best for us. Always has. That's, it. That's what it does. It, it makes us want to miss the standard. The sinful desires of the flesh. The evil heart that we have before Christ. It makes us want to rebel in the worst ways that we possibly can think of. But when we see the law that reveals the character of our God, we begin to see the absolute sinfulness of our sin. You see, the Bible says this. It's the kindness of our Lord who leads us to repentance. Well, how does that kind Lord lead us to repentance? He shows us that we need to repent through the law because of sin. He leads us to repentance. He gives us a brand new heart and we repent and believe and trust in Christ. That's kindness. The law shows the standard and that's the standard that we constantly fall short of. And I got news for you. Even if you're in Christ, you fall short of that standard all the time. Don't think that repentance is a one-time deal and you're done. We live a life of repentance around here. I know I do. Usually every morning as my wife and I pray before work, that's one of the things we do. God, search us. If there's any evil way in us, please forgive us. We will repent and turn from it. Absolutely, we live a life of repentance. And you see what happens is, when the law is revealed, sometimes our sinfulness isn't just revealed. It gets worse in our eyes. We don't just see that we're sinners. We see this. We see that through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. That sin might become sinful beyond measure. We see it and it magnifies. And we see how sinful we are. Not because of what we're doing. Not the act itself. But the fact that we have a holy God who created us and has rights over us. And we are offending him and spitting in his eye every day. We see how sinful that is. We need to see how sinful that is. We definitely do. So... Not only do we see God's character expressed in the law, but we are commanded to do the law in order to have righteousness ourselves. And through that standard, we see our total depravity and helpless state before holy God. I have no hope if keeping the law is what saves me. I have no hope because I can't do it. When Jesus says... If you look upon another woman to lust after her, you commit adultery. Guess what? That's something a, a young child starts doing from the time he starts getting those feelings. 
Or that if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. How many of us have looked around and had somebody that we just despised? We can't keep it. How about this? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can't do it. We're too divided in our minds. It's tough. Where's the hope? We can't possibly do the law. We can't meet the standard in ourselves. So what do we do? This is one of those moments when I'm going to give you a but, okay? You can't meet the requirements of the law in yourself. You will never be holy, just, and good yourself by keeping the law. You will never have God's attributes within yourself if you just try to do right. Why? Because you're going to break the law. You're going to mess up. But Ephesians chapter 2 continues. We see that we're dead. We see that we're lost in our trespasses and sins. But it continues in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by God. We must be saved by God. Because I can't meet the standard. We cannot fulfill the law. But Christ did. We are exceedingly sinful. But Christ died for sinners. You see, the law is holy. We aren't. But Christ is. The law is just. We deserve the wrath of God. But Christ took the wrath for us on the cross. The law is good. We cannot live good enough lives to be saved. But Christ was perfect. And he lived the law, lived the life we couldn't live, fulfilling the law. With Christ as our mediator, our righteousness depends on him. Guess what? You're in a good place. If your righteousness depends on Christ, you're good to go. Because he is holy, he is righteous, and he is God.
The fullness of deity dwelled in him. And if I'm dependent upon him and what he did, I'm good. I can make it. Brother Jesse suggested a song to me last week. We plan to do it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. And he washed it white as snow. He paid it all. And then when he washed that robe white as snow, do you know what he did with it? He wrapped you in it. And declared you righteous because of what he has done. If that ain't good news, I don't know what is. Because I could never wash myself clean. I could never fulfill these laws and this holy and righteous and just God would look down on me as a worm and, I, and I'm worthless. But when I fell to my knees and I repented of my sin and I placed my trust in Christ, God now sees the righteous robe of Christ on my shoulders. And I am his forevermore. Thanks be to God that his law brings us to utter and complete dependence on Christ. He must save us. Not only that, but then he keeps us. That's salvation to the uttermost. If Jesus did enough to save us, he's powerful enough to keep us. Thanks be to God. Now, I hope that what this sermon has done is challenged the Christian in this way. I owe all to Christ. And I hope it brings you to a point of worship of Christ and of God for what he has done. This is amazing. That this holy, just, and good law was even revealed to us is an amazing thing. And the fact that God loved us enough to redeem us by showing us the law and our sinfulness and giving Christ as the redemption, the atonement for us to be our substitute. What a God. What an amazing God we serve. He is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. Now, if you are not in Christ, I hope that this is how you've taken the sermon. I am sinful. I am wretched. I can't follow this law that he's telling me about. I can't be just like God. I need Christ. So sinner, this is what you do. You run to Christ. Repent and place your trust fully in him. That is your only hope. Because if you want to stay trying to meet this standard of law to be righteousness, to be righteous, you're going to be filthy. But Jesus can wash you white as snow. Sinner, repent. And turn to Christ.
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this word, God. We thank you for your law that brings us to the end of ourselves, where we see our utter dependence on Christ, that Christ is our only hope. Help us right now to turn to him completely, God. If there be anyone here who does not know you, God, or anybody who hears this sermon that does not know you, I ask that you would convict their hearts, draw them unto yourself, that they may repent, place their trust in Christ, God. That their heart of stone may be replaced with a heart of flesh. They may be made new in Christ. Father, I pray for all those who are in Christ already, who know you, who love you, that they may see even more reasons to worship you through the power of what you have done for us, the redemption with which you have redeemed us. God, for we are hopeless and helpless without you. And you have called us unto yourself, made us brand new creatures, and it is finished. We thank you. We know that you keep us and you hold us in your hand and no man may pluck us from it. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for these people, those who are in this building and those who may hear this later, God. Bless them all. May they be challenged and may they be driven to the word for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out all of our social media. The links are in the show notes. Catch us next time on another episode of Small Town Pilgrims Podcast.